Welcome to Professoring, the show that gives you the R&R. The real and realer about life in academia. I'm Anthony Ocampo, sociologist, writer, Los Angelino, puppy parent, Virgo, and your co-host. And I am Badia Ahad Lagardi. I am a literary scholar, native Chicagoan, super stepmom, amateur golfer, and your other co-host, so today on this episode of Professoring, we are going to be talking about how to move forward. I mean, to be honest, how to move at all when life happens. I think that this is something that comes up for everyone because life is always happening. So I was just thinking about my own experiences, um, certainly people that I talk to in a coaching context in which they're trying to figure out how to navigate all of the demands of academic life. So, you know, writing, research, teaching, service, all the basic stuff. But then, you know, other stuff happens in life too. So you have people who have babies and- (laughs) Hooray, babies. Yay, Yay. babies, yes, that's a good thing. And then people who are taking care of aging parents, people who move, uh, and then certainly people that pass away. So part of this stemmed from my own unfortunate experience. So I was, I think, let's see, it was back in 2007, and I was dealing with my mom's cancer, and she happened to pass away that year. And uh, that was right in mid-August, which, you know, if you're on the semester system, that means that it's right at the beginning of when your semester is about to begin. So I'm pre-tenure, I'm, you know, obviously grieving and don't feel like doing anything but watching Netflix Uh and sleeping and crying. And I was fortunate in that my department was extremely supportive and helpful during that time. So they were willing to give me all the space that I needed. Uh, A lot of my colleagues offered to sub my classes until I was ready to come back. But to be quite honest, I didn't take them up on those offers. I actually recall going to class and teaching my classes and not doing much more than that. But I actually felt like for me, it was something to get me out of bed. Yeah. You know, like it gave me a sense of something to do besides be sad. And I was fortunate that the universe gave me some really amazing students that particular semester. So actually being in that space with them, I found to be very helpful. But I have to say that that was also a semester, and I would say probably most of that academic year, that not a lot of writing got done. Mm -hmm. I would literally get up, go teach, come back home, put on my pajamas, and, you know, it was certainly a year of depression. So, you know, I understand uh, where people are coming from when they are seeking out advice about how to go about doing all of their job responsibilities when life happens, but... I always say that you're a human being first. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, and even though I get the impulse to want to be productive and want to be, you know, not to let your students down and things like that, at the same time, I strongly feel that you have to honor yourself first. Mm -hmm. 
So I know that when we were thinking about this this episode and, and we were talking about, you know, professoring through death and, and devastation and what have you. But sometimes you just can't professor through. You can't professor through. I feel like in the times when I haven't lost a parent myself, but in, in losing, you know, I come from a large extended family. Mm-hmm. I was someone that was raised, I consider my grandmother my second mom because from age four to the moment she passed, she was, I lived with her for mm-hmm. most of my life. She was the one who took care of me, uh, got me ready for school, got me dressed, made me breakfast, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember the wailing. I could, I couldn't even call it crying. It was mm-hmm. like the wailing that happened when she was, you know, transitioned. And the way I, I was thinking about this period of my life was I couldn't think more than two minutes ahead yeah i couldn't think more than two minutes ahead and if i got to thinking five minutes ahead that felt like a victory yeah. so the idea of thinking a day ahead was like just beyond and yeah. it's not linear so much of our careers i think and for many type a people we do this we do that we yeah. do that we do that it we think so linearly we think that if we put in the work we'll get to a certain mark and then we'll move forward but the idea of moving forward through grief is, I think it's almost silly yeah. to think that people can move forward only. And you can't plan for how you're going to feel. Mm-mm. I mean, one day you may wake up and feel okay, and the next day you may wake up and not feel yeah. okay. And so I think for me, the best recommendation that I got at that time was you know, a, a really good friend who was pretty non-intrusive but she just said you know i don't know if you're interested or even thought about grief counseling but if you do have a recommendation for someone that you can go talk to and as honestly i thought it like maybe therapy could help but i didn't Mm -hmm. even know grief counseling to be honest was a thing like i had no Mm -hmm. idea that people specialized in dealing with people who are grieving and i was like oh that sounds like me so i took her recommendation and actually it was Carrie Ann Rockmore. She actually <laughs> recommended a grief counselor for me. And so I took her recommendation and I met with the counselor and I credit her 100% uh-huh. to helping me, I mean, really become a person that could interact with other people, you know, over the course of a year, I would say. But uh, she was amazing. And I definitely felt like I needed that kind of support to kind of make my way through that experience. So, and and something that we talk about a lot with the faculty success program is lowering your standards, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I think you mentioned academics and how we're so type A, mm-hmm. right? And wanting to excel at 100% yeah. in all of these different areas. But realizing that, you know, when you have a newborn or when you're grieving, or when you're ill, or when you're going through any kind of significant, when you're getting a divorce, you know, Uh any kind of significant life transition, it's really a disservice to yourself to even, I think, attempt to try to maintain a high level of standards with anything. And I think that's a lot of people's instinct is to double down on the work, just to anesthetize, but I feel like that just, postpones (laughs) postpones <laughs> the inevitable um as someone that is very good at or 
I'm pretty good about feelings these days, but <laughs> in earlier chapters of my life, <laughs> earlier chapters of my life, I, I wouldn't say I was very good at compartmentalizing. And I think that one thing I've learned as I've gotten older is no matter how much whatever work or writing or productivity or gym or whatever you want to say, like you just inevitably have to come to terms with all the, the stuff that's happening. And I wanted to ask you this when you when Carrie Ann mentioned that grief counseling could mm-hmm. be a possibility or when you talk to someone who's going through a life transition, I'm honestly curious, did you feel like there was a bit of resistance to taking on that kind of support that you weren't even aware about? Or do mm-hmm. you find that when you talk to people that you try to suggest extra resources, mm-hmm. whether if it, it's it's something a new birth or yeah. a passing people are resistant to it. What's been your, the reaction to that kind of advice? Cause I could imagine that if the advice comes from the wrong person, you could be like, well, what the F do you know? Yeah. I wouldn't say that people are resistant in a really negative way. I think that, well, I certainly wasn't resistant when Carrie Ann mentioned the grief counseling. I was willing to take on whatever suggestions people had for how to, kind of deal with that immense grief but normally the resistance takes the form of well this is especially the case if you're pre-tenure that the institutional timeline isn't going to stop Mm -mm. for you and so there's a hesitation to do anything that might not allow for that person to keep pace with that. So, you know, if the tenure clock is ticking, people will often think like, okay, well, I know that I'm having a child. And, you know, because of legalities, like there's time that's built in for that. I mean, the Mm -hmm. university has to give you time off, but, you know, they don't necessarily have to give you time off if you're going through a divorce. So they don't have to. So there are other things where people feel like they don't have the privilege to actually take the time that they need because they don't believe that they'll get the institutional support to do that. And so there is a resistance to wanting to slow down. There's a resistance to wanting to take care of yourself because you're trying to think about, well, how is my impending divorce going to affect my career? Yeah. I think that in the moments where I've had either devastations happen or even illness. There was one spring where I had a sepsis scare. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I feel like my devastations always serendipitously occur when I am the most (laughs) hyper-invested in academia. I'll get to the sepsis thing in a second. Uh But in some ways, I wonder if, like, the universe is, is trying to send me a message that, yo, this academia thing, it's not the only... It's not the most important thing in the world. So mm-hmm. my first experience with this, I have on our notes, we're, we're going to talk about heartbreak, but we'll save that for later. Oh. <laughs> I have a heartbreak story, but... You definitely don't get FMLA for that. No, no, so. no. <laughs> <laughs> I got dumped. Right. <laughs> I need three months off. <laughs> That's what it felt like. <laughs> so as a lot of people know, when you go on the academic job market, it's in the fall of an academic year, your last year of graduate school, you're often preparing for that fall for 
at least a few months, if not most of the previous year. You're preparing cover letters and writing samples. You're you're getting your CV together. You're putting together a potential job talk if you happen to be invited. And what was really interesting about my last year in graduate school is that was the summer of family tragedy. So. Mm-hmm. I remember in the early part of the summer, my uh, godmother, aunt, she she was she's actually the first family member on my of my mom's generation that I came out to and voiced acceptance about my Mm -hmm. queerness. And so uh, she went in for something that should have been a routine surgery. And then when the surgery happened, she had internal bleeding and then over the course of two weeks um, eventually passed away. Mm -hmm. And so it was this this two week period of me and my family living at the hospital ICU for like night and day. And we would just, that's all we did. And in in some ways this is where I I appreciate the the academic calendar because you can do things like that. But in the middle of these waiting room hangouts that me and my family would have that's when my grandmother the one the woman who I consider my second mom who raised me that's when she was diagnosed with colon cancer Mm. and that was obviously devastating but she's a super resilient woman she's survived her children passing. She survived World War II, living in caves for a while. Like mm-hmm. this was a woman that, despite all the things that happened, she she maintained a certain resilience that I, I've always admired. And so, diagnosed with colon cancer, was gonna have surgery for it later that summer, but ended up having a stroke a month later. Recovered from this stroke and then had the surgery, a routine surgery to remove a mass, and then ended up getting an infection. So she, it wasn't the cancer, it wasn't mm-hmm. the stroke. It was, And so it was this peculiar thing of, this was the fall in which I was working on my job market materials, the thing I'd been working for for the past six years, and I was doing all this stuff like in the hospital cafeteria. I distinctly remember having my laptop in hospital cafeterias working on like formatting cover letters and CVs. I remember how much that experience changed me because for so much of my academic career, it was all about the delayed gratification. I'm going to move wherever the job is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I need to do to move in this career. And all of a sudden, it's like everything that I learned to care about in academia just in an instant didn't matter anymore yeah it just didn't matter anymore and i feel like my entire value system changed Mm -hmm. then and i've had other moments like that i remember when i was on the job market for a second time and again i you know i was willing to go wherever i almost became your coworker. (laughs) i'm rolling my eyes Anyway, he was so disingenuous. That's about not that search. I was not. I you really. Were. I went to a Loyola High School. I would have. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, like. What? No, no. That, that, <laughs> I was. No, I was honestly. I honestly was considering it. I promise you. Okay. So anyway, so such a tease. But I think about 
I ended up not going to Chicago for that for that position. But what was and I always wondered whether I made the right decision. But I what ended up happening the fall that me and my partner would have moved to Chicago was his mother suddenly passed away. Mm. And it was this really peculiar thing of, you know, we were planning my partner and I were setting up my mom's big 65th birthday and we were in the middle of you know table setting up tables and chairs and then all of a sudden his mom ended up in the hospital and a couple days later passed away and so uh, it's just again one of those moments where getting up is a victory yeah so what would you say to people who do feel that they don't have the space to take time away from their academic lives because of whatever personal issues that they're trying to attend to? Like, what would you say to someone who has kind of come to you with advice or or insight around how to approach that? I don't want to ever diminish anyone's feelings that they feel like they won't be supported. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is certainly research to suggest that the experience for new mothers in academia isn't optimal. In fact, new mothers Mm -hmm. in this country, in the workplace, isn't optimal. But what I would say is that through every devastation or tragedy that I've experienced in academia, I have always been incredibly surprised at someone manages to come out of the woodworks. I I was reading this this memoirist and poet named Saeed Jones uh, wrote this recent book, which which a lot of it is centered on his experience of dealing with his mother's passing. But he was so surprised at how his uncle, who he'd never really been that close to, was very good mm-hmm. in that period when his mom passed away. And I think that's that's something I've noticed when there, there are certain people that are just really good with providing support in those kind of moments mm-hmm. that, that aren't necessarily the folks that you would expect. So mm-hmm. I would say, number one, let yourself be surprised at what people are willing to do for you. Mm-hmm. What would you what would be one that you would suggest? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would suggest that if you don't have that support or if you don't feel like you're getting that kind of support that you need to create that for yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to bring this back to my like reality television fixation, but do you watch Project Run- Runway? Just a little just bit, a little yes. Bit. Uh-huh. Have you been watching it? This, this new season? Yeah. Yes, I okay. have been watching it. <laughs> All right. So, you know, one of my favorite designers bowed out this season. Da Young. The, oh, the, the the one from Korea. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or Portland. She lives in, I believe she lives in Portland. Anyway, yes. She lives in Portland, but she's Korean. Yes. So, she I loved kept her. getting sick. Yes. And... I have no idea what the pace is like on Project Runway, but they all say that it's demanding and it's tiring and all that. But clearly, you know, people do it because you get this massive prize Mm -hmm. at the end, right? And all this visibility for your brand and and what have you. Yeah. But I remember when she decided that the competition was no longer for her. Yeah. And that she was going to leave because she kept getting sick. Uh She said something in her exit interview that I thought was really powerful, which is that I'm a human being first and I'm a designer second. Yes. And I was like, yep, you are. I mean, so it was kind of, 
you know, I was sad to see her go because I really did like her designs. But at the same time, I had a lot of respect for the fact that she was not willing to sacrifice herself for this external reward at the end. And it was almost as if she kind of acknowledged that, you know, her career doesn't end with her time on Project Runway. I mean, she's still a designer, whether she's on the show or not, right? So I would say that, you know, sometimes you have to make a hard decision Uh and decide that you're not going to sacrifice yourself for this external thing. And I'm not, I don't want to say like, yeah, you know, forget tenure and don't worry about tenure. Uh But I do think that tenure doesn't really mean that much. Yeah. (laughs) If at the end of the day, you're in that position, but you're not doing well, right? Mentally Um, or physically. physically. Right. And we've all seen those people that have gotten tenure and maybe they thought tenure was going to be the solution and then you see it's not the solution it's not the solution it's so not the solution (laughs) i think it's always good to meet folks you know and i say this from of course a privileged position of both of us having tenure but i regularly talk to folks who have left the academy because i find that it's so it infuses perspective Mm -hmm. in a way that i don't think you get if you're only surrounded by other people that are on the tenure track and tenure where you think it's the most important thing in the world. Well, I think it's so (laughs) I remember back in my single days, (laughs) I know before I became a married woman Uh, (laughs) golfing in the suburbs, right? (laughs) Look, I'm living my best life right now. I can't complain, but on your Peloton, on my Peloton, I know (laughs) I feel very uh, bougie with you saying all those things in a a row about me i feel like you know but anyway lean into the bouginess lean into the bougie Uh uh yeah i posted a picture of me in my obnoxiously posted this picture of me in this like fancy all saints jacket that i proudly bought off the bargain rack in a (laughs) vegas outlet and i was like you know what it feels good to flex on them a little bit yes why not so as I was saying, um, in my single days, I remember complaining to a friend that I was just so unlucky in love and <laughs> how one day, you know, I, I hope that I had the same wonderful situation that she was in <laughs> and she was, she was married or she is married and, and was then too, but uh, she was like, you know, marriage is not better than being single. It's just different. Mm. And... It wasn't until I got married <laughs> that I understood. I mean, you know, I, I got it, right? Like, I, I understood what she was saying that, you know, and I feel the same way about when I talk to people who are no longer in academia. I don't think one of them regrets it. Mm-mm. You know, they just, they say that, you know, it's not necessarily better than yeah. it was, but yeah. it's, it's a different experience, right? And so, and we're not saying like, oh, you go through your death and devastation and, and leave academia, but mm-hmm. I think that sometimes depending on what you're dealing with, you know, and you have to make those difficult choices. I like to call those the, there are those moments in life where you think, wow, that really wasn't that bad. That yeah. thing that you have built up yeah. to be the worst thing in the world yeah. isn't that bad. And this 
makes me think about the other thing I have in f- I'm looking at the word in front of me the heartbreak oh I'm not part. talking about that you're not talking about this no I do have one other point of advice though that yes. I want to share with people that I think is important um, and I hope this doesn't sound too much like a NCFDD faculty success program like mantra but I'm going to say it anyway because I believe in it one of the reasons why I truly believe I did not stumble that far, even though I didn't do much for that year after my mom passed away, is because I had been a daily writer. Mm. So that is precisely one of the reasons why I will forever preach the gospel of daily writing, why I believe in it as, you know, a way to live and give you some semblance of work-life balance. Yeah. But when you do it every day and you don't wait for the breaks, you know, you actually build up quite a few pages in the coffer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if something happens in your life that's unexpected, yeah, right, then you're not so woefully behind yeah and sometimes you know it's not like i didn't write at all i was just inconsistent right but even having an inconsistent year um just by virtue of the fact that i had been so consistent before that Uh i was already pretty ahead of the game yeah so i was able to kind of deal with my stuff without feeling the extra anxiety mm-hmm. of having to do all this, you know, work because I had already developed that that habit. So I, I hate to kind of, you know, people are always, always like, you're always talking about writing every day, but I'm like, that's because I think that it allows for you to actually, like I said, have a similar, you can take breaks doing your breaks. <laughs> like actual breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, when things happen, it's, it's just not as anxiety producing yeah. um, because you you do have that habit there and you also have a body of work there that you've kind of built up um, as a result of having that habit. So I just wanted to say that before we closed out because I thought it was important to, to note. And I think it is important to note because on, on a different level, writing every day, it also helps me process not just my ideas, but emotions yeah. as well. Yeah. Even if you weren't writing specifically about what's going on in your life, sure. there's something about putting words on a page. page. It's therapeutic. It's <laughs> very therapeutic. And I hear this time and again from folks who went from not doing the daily writing thing and were doing the binge thing mm-hmm. to they did the they, they tried it for two weeks. And every single time folks by the seventh to tenth day mark they're like oh my gosh yeah i feel a certain emotional calmness that washes over me when i do this every day i mean it's true and like i said i didn't want to you know all this is about getting to daily writing but i just felt like that was such an important piece of managing that really difficult moment in time because uh-huh. I didn't have to worry about being productive. Yeah. I could actually allow myself the time that I needed to grieve the most devastating loss in my life, you know, and I think that that would have been much more difficult if I had to do that and contend with the fact that, oh my God, I 
am so behind with mm-hmm. my book or I, you know I had planned to do X, Y, and Z and now I, I can't because I'm you know dealing with all this grief. So I didn't have to kind of muddle yeah. all of that. I could actually just focus on healing myself. Exactly, exactly. From a different angle, what would you say are things, what are the do's and don'ts? Because I know that a lot of people have folks in their hallway, colleagues that go through things, whether it's new babies Mm -hmm. or um, the passing of parents or the passing of other family. What would you say are some do's and don'ts for what people should do, Mm -hmm. what people should not do? And I know this is, of course, very individually based, but I think that that that's a question I have that I know is lingering in people's heads. Mm-hmm. If someone that I care about has someone that passes away what would, or, you know, has, has someone that just had a baby mm-hmm. and I've known them for most of their life, this has not been the norm. Mm-hmm. And they're all of a sudden at a loss at how to interact. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? I think what's most helpful is just when people just said, I'm here for you. Just let me know what you need mm-hmm. and mean it. Yeah. You know, you can actually say what you need. Like when a lot of times people would offer things for mm-hmm. me, which were very nice and generous, but it was just kind of like, I don't really need that right now. Like, you know, and so giving people the space to know that you're there, I think is important. Mm-hmm. I mean, my number one don't is whether you're an academic or not, if somebody is dealing with the passing of a loved one, I never think you should say, but they're in a better place now. (laughs) That was always the worst thing I thought anyone could ever say. So that would be my number one don't, just Uh in general, when you're talking to anyone who's lost someone that they love. It'll get better is another one that I I don't really like, to be honest. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like the they're in a better place. I don't Uh like the, you know, it'll get better. Yeah. Because people are not really in the space to hear that. And yeah. so I think, like I said, just let me know what you need. Mm-hmm. That was enough. And, and you know, fortunately, like I said, my colleagues were really good. And even them offering to sub in mm-hmm. for me, I didn't take them up on it. But, you know, I have since extended myself like that to other colleagues yeah. that were going yeah. through. And some have taken me up on it and some haven't. Yeah. Yeah. My partner, he's only 34, but he lost both of his parents and so his what i've noticed with him is he only likes hearing things from other people who've also shared that same experience because mm-hmm. there's a certain level of clear understanding and right. and so that has come to light in our conversations as well is that sure. there's a certain there's the right person that can say the right the, the certain things whereas you you may not be in a position to say the sure the thing so well why don't we wrap up this yeah. Portion of professoring, mm-hmm. and we should kick it over to NCFDD to hear a little bit from them, and then we'll go on to our next segment. The National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, or NCFDD, is a professional development organization with the mission of changing the face of power in the academy. We aim to strengthen the higher education system and improve the academic experience by offering specialized coaching and mentoring to faculty, postdocs, and graduate students. Please visit us at www.facultydiversity.org to learn more about our services, including institutional membership, our faculty success program, and our on-campus workshops. All right. 
We have hit the next segment of our program. Peer review. Peer review. I know. I'm so excited. What is peer review? What is peer review? So peer review is that wonderful evaluation process that all academics have to go through. Mm -hmm. And when you submit your work to any kind of press or journal, you get readers who are your peers Uh that comment. Yeah on that work and they recommend if it should be accepted or declined. Yeah. So I say that uh, how it really shakes out is you have reviewer number one that writes really wonderful things that really gets what you're doing. It's like one of your parents, you know, read (laughs) your piece. (laughs) They have nothing but glowing things to say about it, right? Like this person could do no wrong. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and it makes you smile, and it makes you feel really smart and wonderful. And then? And then you have reviewer number two. Uh-huh. That seems like they always, you know, just nitpick. They don't understand what you're trying to do. They don't understand what you're trying to say. They're, like, super cranky. Sometimes they'll give you insight that's helpful, but most of the time they're just using your work as a uh, space to project their own rage. Oh, so. I thought you were going to say, like, uh, a place to, like, you know, like the airport where you take your dog to use the rest of the bathroom? <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say. I, I did not say that. I did not say that. But uh, those are the people that seem like, you know, they're mad that they have to read your stuff in the first place. And mm-hmm. whatever you wrote, you know, it just makes them angry. So... They are reviewer number two, very unlike reviewer number one. So this is the segment of the the podcast where we're going to take a topic, give our hot takes. Sometimes we'll be reviewer number one. Sometimes we'll be reviewer number two. Yeah. So our topic for today, I know that our topic just before the break was about devastation and loss. And our topic that we have slayed for today is conferences and one would not think that there's a relationship between conferences and devastation but i am actually going to link oh the two okay go for so, it so okay first of all let me just start by saying this is going to be a mixed review you always do mixed reviews i know i'm fickle so You're like re- reviewer 1.5 <laughs> reviewer 1.5 <laughs> so Okay, let me first say that my, my very first academic conference, I was an undergrad, I went to some ethnic studies conference, and my first experience was I went and I was like, I have no idea what anybody's saying. And so I didn't go for a couple years. Okay. And I just, I, was in, I went to graduate school and, I, you know, I wasn't trying to go to conferences from the first year on, but I remember I thought, oh, conference this could be like a nice excuse for me and my boyfriend at the time it's my first relationship in grad school if you might my my boyfriend at the time there's this conference in hawaii and i should use the conference as an excuse to have this hawaiian vacation with my partner well lucky for me a couple weeks before when i was in the middle of doing my dissertation field work in the philippines I get a call from said boyfriend saying, it's over. <laughs> Is this the conference's fault? I mean, it's like. not. <laughs> so anyway, I had to go to this conference, all super I'm not sad. I'm your pain, by the way. 
it was it was really painful at the time now i'm like it's the best thing that happened to me but i went to the conference with a broken heart it was a it was the same ethnic studies conference mm-hmm. that i went years before and i went with the most non-conference headspace in mind obviously i was there to present a paper but i went in just wanting to connect with people mm-hmm. and I, I think that the idea that conferences are mainly there as a way to connect with people yeah. is an unexpected lesson i had from the 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 circumstance in which i went to this first conference mm-hmm. because there i just i was healing from this breakup i i really just wanted to interact with folks on a purely human level mm-hmm. and i wasn't sort of paying attention to all the you know, I should connect with this person because yeah. they're a star in the field yeah. and I should connect with that person because they're quote unquote important. And I just forged real connections. And I think that that was that serviced me very well because mm-hmm. I met friends based on a true human level mm-hmm. basis instead of a CV driven mm-hmm. interactions. And those friends sprouted into other friends who sprouted into other, that sprouted other friendships. And it made going to that conference, this annual retreat where I Mm -hmm. got to rejuvenate with friends that were in my same field, but ultimately were friends first and foremost. And I think that the conventional knowledge sometimes in graduate school is that we should go to conferences because we need feedback for a paper or we have to meet this star in the field. I just don't think that sets people up for the right experience. Yeah. I think what you just said is so important, especially as a person of color in academia. Uh All right. I know I just teased you because I said that you had a mixed review and then I'm going to like come with my own mixed review. Do you know what 1.5 plus 1.5 equals? It's three, just like one and two. That didn't fly. Never mind. Okay. You're not. We're having a lot of moments like this where I think you're going to get what I'm saying. And this is why there's two people. And our producer, Dana, is trying to silently laugh. <laughs> Conferences. Yes. So, anywho, uh, I agree with Anthony. I think as a person of color, I have relied on conferences and the relationships that I've made with other scholars of color to sustain me through academia. So I think for the first 12 years in my department, I was the only person of color, like not the only black person, but the only person of color, I am. And so going to conferences actually, you know, not just the emotional community, but I actually needed an intellectual community, like people that I, who are doing the kind of work that I'm doing, uh, you know, the people with whom I'm in critical conversation. So I love my other black women, academic girlfriends, uh, and we always make a point to connect when we're at the same conferences. And it's always the best part of the conference for me. Actually, I think I posted a picture from the most recent conference I attended on on Twitter and it got a lot of likes. I mean, not as many as Anthony's because he has a lot more like Twitter friends than (laughs) I do. Um, They're all friends. They're all friends. Uh, Look, I have a very organic Twitter following, okay? I get like... You do? Three three per month or something. Was this the conference you went to in Bellevue, Washington? (laughs) I'm giving Anthony a major side eye. It was in Seattle close to Bellevue. 
I believe. Okay. okay. I posted a picture and you know, my tweet was something like when people ask me how I survive as a woman of color in academia, uh-huh. and I just posted a picture of like all of us um, at the conference. And that's true. Now, the, the mixed part of it is that, like most things in academic life, in need of a radical overhaul. Oh, yeah. The structure of the pricing, I think it reproduces a certain elitism, mm-hmm. and it's very exclusionary, especially for folks that do not have financial support from their institutions to attend or that just don't have the money. Right. Because Or time. Right. Or time. Because conferences are so expensive. I mean, like a family of four could take a decent vacation for the amount of money that it costs me to attend like a conference for three days. To Disney World. Right. (laughs) I mean, seriously, it costs, I think, yeah, it costs a lot of money. I would say... You know, with airfare, hotel, transportation, food, conference registration, uh-huh. and then, you know, the membership, you know, your membership has to be active for oh, whatever yeah. organization. That can run you $3,000, $4,000 easy. And let's just imagine that you are in this lucky situation where your institution does pay for these things. Well, 99% of these institutions do it on a reimbursement oh. yes. only. My institution is actually good about getting my money back, but the fact that you are out of like thousands of dollars uh-huh. for even a week and a half is a long time. Right, because you're not paying for that plane ticket a day before. Right, right. So that is a big thing. And and, and as, for example, I, I have no idea in graduate school, I, just, I guess I just paid with credit cards unwisely and didn't pay too. those off. But that is the unfortunate thing is that your visibility matters. Yes. But then it's also predicated on your ability to pay for these expensive excursions that, you know, are difficult if you have to do think about childcare or other responsibilities. So that is especially when so much so much of your success as an academic is based on I don't want to yeah, and just your relationships you mm-hmm. know you know people people tell you about different opportunities I think about so many things that have happened for me that have good things mm-hmm. that have been as a result of my relationships with people that I've met at conferences yeah but if you don't actually get to go because you don't have the time or the money right then you're you know excluded from that and so I, I say that conferences are good Obviously, because you get to make with these wonderful connections, but that whole system needs to be rethought in a way that is more equitable across mm-hmm. the board. So that's my hot take. Here's my one last thing about it. Mm-hmm. It'll take 10 seconds. Conference organizers, you don't need to put the institution on people's name badges. That reproduces elitism, too, because if you time the interest with like that people have in someone with a... Uh, Ivy League institution under their name versus a less recognized institution. It's absurd how different people get treated based on the institution on their name badge. So just remove that altogether. Agreed. All right. All right. Thank you for hanging out with us on this episode of Professoring. If you got any questions, you can hit up podcast at facultydiversity.org. I'm on Twitter at Anthony Ocampo and Badia is on Twitter at Badia Ahad. We'll see you next time. <laughs>